I'm Eileen Mancera, co-chair of PE Wins Communications Committee. For those of you joining for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women's Investor Network, also known as PE Win. We are the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. PE Win provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly as the founding chair of PEWIN, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets under management until she let it sail in 2014. She is the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation and serves on the board of Greenbrier Companies and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to the latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm your host and the founding chair of the Private Equity Women Investor Network, Kelly Williams, and I'm delighted to have my guest, Kristen Gunther, who's a partner at Revolution Growth, here with me today. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you so much, Kelly. Great to be here. It's a treat on a Monday morning. Yes. After, and just for our listeners, it's after Thanksgiving. So we've probably both been well-fed and had lots of naps and uh, it's Cyber Monday. So we're taking a break from our cyber shopping to talk to everybody today. And it's a little bit appropriate for Kristen because she's got quite a bit of expertise in the the, uh, retail sector, but we'll get to that. But let's start where I always start, which is, can you tell our listeners a little bit about key moments in your early life? Where and and when did you grow up? And and talk a little bit about that for everybody. I grew up in Massachusetts, sort of a say lower middle class area in Massachusetts. Um, and I had two brothers. I had an older brother and a younger brother, so I was the only girl sandwiched among two boys. And I'd say I had a very warm and loving childhood. Uh, my mom uh, was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked for 40 years at General Motors, so from the start of his career to the end, so very stable, hardworking. My family was together a lot. We weren't able to do like crazy vacations or do a lot of travel. So we were just at home a lot as a family, which looking back on, I think was a great way to spend a childhood. So, um, so yeah. Well, great. It's, it sounds very similar to my upbringing, you know, in my household, we, again, a lower middle-class family. We did not take elaborate vacations. When we did take vacation, we camped so that it was very inexpensive to stay wherever we went. But my mom made sure we had went out for nice dinners and we always went to, you know, museums or historic sites. That was my dad's thing. And hence, I never camp now. <laughs> I refuse. <laughs> um, but anyway, I totally understand what you're saying. Given your upbringing, how did you, how did you learn about private equity as a potential career? How did you make a decision to, to go into finance? 
Yeah, I think it was sort of a long and winding decision. I knew, you know, growing up again, I had everything I, I needed, but I definitely felt pretty acutely my parents stress over finances. And my mom would have a certain amount of money she could spend at the grocery store. And it was definitely it was present in my life, the fact that my parents struggled to, you know, make ends meet. And so I felt from a young age, I really wanted to be financially successful and financially independent. And that really drove me, I think, for when I was when I was young to really like want my own money. And, you know, I was really driven to do lots of odd jobs and lots of babysitting as a kid and that type of thing. And I really wanted my own money. I wanted to spend it, you know, how I how I wanted. So that was important for me young age. So, you know, when I was young, I thought the only thing I could think of that would make a lot of money was being a lawyer. That was all I knew. So I said, okay, well, I'll be a lawyer. And then I went to college and before, you know, I, I think I did one semester of political science and was not not into it. But I had taken in college for the first time, I took um, economics and really just fell in love with it. I loved applying math to kind of real world, real life problems. So I became uh, an economics major. And then we had Lehman Brothers at the time was recruiting on campus. And so I learned about investment banking through through that and realized that finance you know, beyond being something that would dovetail nicely with my economics background, I said, oh, this will pay off my student loans. Um, I had about, you know, I graduated with, you know, six figures worth of student loans. And so I said, this is great. I'll do investment banking. I'll pay back my loans and then we'll go from there. And then, you know, once I spent a couple of years on, on Wall Street, you know, as I took some time to reflect on where I wanted to go, I, I realized that what I really enjoyed the most when I was doing investment banking was really spending time with the management teams and understanding their stories and understanding their companies and where they had been and where they were going. And, you know, I think investment banking was a wonderful way to start my career, but I always, I knew I wanted more. I wanted to just spend more time with the companies. Um, and so went into business school knowing that that's where I wanted to land when I graduated. And so had, had anybody else in your family pursued a path like that? Like, did your brothers go to college? Did they go to business school? Um, no, uh, sort of a lone ranger. Um, my brothers did go to college, but nobody in my family pursued finance or business really in any way, shape or form. Um, I still think my mom to this day thinks I work in an ATM machine, which is fine. <laughs> I, know. I know. My parents have no idea what I do. They they always say, we don't know what it is. We know you like you use a lot of big words when you're talking about things. And it was much easier when I was a lawyer because unlike you, I did actually go and pursue the, the law degree, but then I ended up moving to the business side. But yeah, they, my parents, if you ask them to describe or explain what I do, they, they could not do it. So were there you know, key moments in your career where you would say were kind of inflection points that helped you move into the senior ranks? Obviously, you're a partner now. Not everybody in private equity, particularly not every woman, makes it up to the senior ranks. Were there, there are things that happen, people who were involved in your career that, that help you make it to the level you're at now? Yeah, I mean, I think I had at the private equity firm that I joined out of business school, I was lucky enough to have a few female colleagues who definitely, you know, were climbing the ladder above me and reached the hand down to pull me up. And I had one performance review or heading into the review, my colleague at the time who was female pulled me aside. She was, she was senior to me. And she said, I just want to let you know, I told them that they need to promote you. So go into this review asking for the promotion that I told you, <laughs> I told them that you needed to get and you deserve to get. And so 
I, without her saying that, I never would have asked for it. I would have just carried on, um, and, you know, taken as they gave it to me, but I never would have asked for it. And so that really gave me the confidence, I think, to ask for a promotion. And I, and I did get it. And so that I would say was, was pretty fundamental. And then once I arrived at my current firm, I'd say the first couple of years were fairly cutthroat as some firms are. And, you know, it was made sort of doubly challenging by the fact that I had a one-year-old and a two-year-old at the time. And the people that I was sort of competing against, for lack of better descriptions, we were all peers. And I, I respect all of them and got along with them very well, actually. But there were only a certain number of spots for promotion. And none of them were even married. And here I was with a one-year-old and a two-year-old, you know. So, and I joked at the time, like, I felt like I had three jobs. I'd had my day job by day. I would go home and be a parent of my second job. And my third job was being a janitor. Once everybody went to bed, I would clean the house. And so it was really, it was a really tough period, but I kind of powered through. I had lots of support from my husband. I, you know, hired some help that was pretty crucial. And I think, you know, even though that was a tough time, like it, you know, it kind of powered me through to the, to the next level and I eventually got promoted. Yeah, you know, I thinking as you were talking about the woman who who told you, hey, I said she, you know, she needs to be promoted. I remember years ago somebody saying all of the decisions about your career happen when you're not in the room. And it's so true, right? It's always a group of people discussing you and, you know, have you have you met the criteria? Is there a slot for you? And without having a woman in the room whether it's you or another woman who has perspective, that's often, you know, that can be a real limiting factor for women. Mm -hmm. And I saw that, you know, as a founder of a business, you know, I was the CEO. And I remember being in a conversation one time about a woman who was going out on maternity leave, but she was up for promotion. And her supervisor <clears throat> said, well, you know, why would we waste a promotion on her? She's probably not going to come back. And I Thank God I was there because I think everybody else, all the other guys in the room would have gone along with that. I said, that's ridiculous. If she's eligible for the promotion, we're giving her the promotion. <laughs> like, why would we not do that? But, it, you know, it, it, at that time, it made me realize how many decisions get made along the way for women if there's not a woman in the room to advocate. So it, mm -hmm. all the more reason why, you know, when people say, well, you know, why do you need women in the senior decision-making roles? You know, if you've, all, if you've made it to partner, why do women have to be involved in the management of the firm? And I think that's what you've just described as a great example of why. Great. So um, apropos of that, I mean, it was, it, has there been times in your career, whether, you know, within the firm or working with the portfolio companies or with other, you know, outside advisors, investment banks, where you've been particularly felt to be, you know, aware of the fact that you're a woman and maybe one of the only women involved? I don't know that there are specifics. I mean, I think I experience what a lot of others do where there's little smaller things that sort of fly under the radar that you, every now and then you take a step back and you say, wait a minute, I, I, you know, I have to give my opinion twice as loud as others. I have to say it three times before somebody listens. And then that type of thing, I'd say, you know, I notice, I don't know that there's, thankfully been you know beyond the obvious like you show up to a dinner and you're the only woman and like things like that but I don't know that there are any major examples on that front I do remember this is a long time ago now but I did equity research for a two-year stint before business school and 
I would have to stand up and present to the trading floor, which was 98% male, generously. And I remember feeling very wide. Um, it's one thing to have to speak publicly and another thing to have to speak publicly when you feel partially like people are listening to you and partially like people are watching you. And that was something that I didn't love about that role. Um, <laughs> and had there been more of a gender mixed on the trading floor, I would have, I think, would have felt completely, completely different. And then the only other thing that sticked out to me was when I was in business school, we went to Bahrain on a, on a trip, which was awesome. And they had set up some different events and meetings for us with different businesses and leaders in the, in the country. And I don't actually remember this specific place that we stopped, but I remember, I actually think it was, we, I think we crossed the border into Saudi Arabia. And they said that one of the, the professors stood up on the bus and said, just so you know, like women, you cannot shake their hands. They will not take your hand back. So do not expect, extend your hand because you know, it will make them feel awkward. And I remember thinking like, what on earth? And I actually remember feeling beyond just that moment of like, wow, this is crazy. Like I'm a businesswoman. I like, what do you mean? I actually felt, you know, fortunate to be in the, in a country and in a working environment where it's obviously not perfect, but where people have made strides. And I think most people come from a good place in terms of trying to bring more women into the workforce and, you know, equal pay and all that stuff. So that was just another story. Hmm. Interesting. You know, I'm on the board of a public company and we we have operations in Saudi. And so before the pandemic, I went over for two reasons. One, I'm a member of YPO and they were having a, a world summit in Riyadh, but then also did some meetings for the company I'm on the board of. And it was just after MBS had taken, you know, taken more control and started giving more rights to women. And my company arranged for meetings for me with like some of the most powerful women in the country, including Princess Rima, who's, you know, is the Saudi was the Saudi ambassador to the US. And the jubilance of these women, you know, telling me like, for instance, that they had driven themselves to the meeting was a really big deal or wearing, you know, wearing different colors or not having to wear, you know, the more traditional clothes. I actually, you know, I, I bought the headdress and the, you know, the clothing. There is a little bit of liberation in it because you can wear whatever you want underneath. And so <laughs> there was some appeal to it, but it was very interesting to be there at a time when women were just starting to get some more rights and freedoms and to see how jubilant they were, even though they were very senior women with a lot of power, it, it was it was an interesting time. So that I, I think that's a that's a great observation that you just made. I still remember one of the things that always sticks with me was very early in my career when I was still practicing law as a young associate. I was in a meeting, and you know what happens to all of us when we're junior? Somebody hands you like a piece of paper to go photocopy, or they ask you for a cup of coffee or something. And someone, a, a guy, one of the business people asked me, I think to get him a cup of coffee. And I looked at him and I said, I'll find someone to do that for you. And someone came up, one of the guys came up to me afterwards and said, that was such a great response because without like offending him or reacting, you let him know that it was not your job, that you were going to make sure he was going to get what he needed, but it was not your job. And so uh, that's, that's something that always sticks with me. But, uh, well, we're going to take a break here quickly to acknowledge our sponsors, and I'll be right back with my conversation with Kristen Gunther.
We would also like to take a brief break to thank P.E. Wynn's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at pewin.org. Now back to today's guest. Welcome back to Moments That Made Her. I'm Kelly Williams, the host of our program, and I'm delighted to be talking with my guest, Kristen Gunther, today. Kristen, I was hoping maybe you could talk with our, our listeners a little bit about your area of specialty and kind of what's particularly interesting in your sector right now. What's what's got your attention? Sure. So I am at a firm that has a couple of different strategies within it. So I work on the, the growth equity strategy at Revolution and just tasked with finding companies that are post-venture risk. So a lot of the venture risk is taken out of the business. So there's product market fit. There's a team that's together and in place. There's real revenue traction. So call it 20 million in revenue or more and still growing really quickly. I'd say I have a pretty broad mandate as it relates to sector. What we really focus on is technology and investing in companies where technology can help the company scale quickly and ideally give sort of an unfair advantage as it relates to market share and that type of thing. And so that's what we do on my team. I'd say over the course of my eight years here, I have sort of covered a pretty broad spectrum of, of sectors. We have a really lean team covering a lot of things. And so I'm a bit of a generalist. We don't really do cyber security here. We don't really do biotech, but everything else within technology is fair game. As you noted earlier, I really enjoy sort of the consumer facing side of things. So I've spent some time in and around food and food tech. Of late, I've been spending a lot of time in commerce, so I just invest in the supply chain business. And as the, the firm, I don't know how much you know about Revolution, but as the firm really leans into its position in Washington, D.C., and with some of the resources that we bring to bear as it relates to, to policy, we have started to close the aperture, you know, the aperture has started to narrow a little bit to focus on companies that have some kind of a regulatory angle, whether they be that be sort of fintech and healthcare, which are just highly regulated industries, or climate, which has a lot of kind of federal funding tailwinds, or sort of a third pillar for us is reindustrialization. So I'm spending a lot of time there as well. Companies that are helping, you know, US farmers or factories to become more efficient and more competitive, as well as supply chain. So for example, I just invested in a company called Pandion which is a, a company based in Seattle that is really helping to give large retailers another option besides UPS and FedEx. And so they are, yeah, so I know it's one of those things the founder, when you first meet the founder and you hear that they're trying to compete with UPS and FedEx, you almost want to hang up the phone because it sounds so crazy. But the reality is, the reality is, as we dug in, that a lot of these, not the retailers, but brands, anybody who's shipping e-commerce, they're really beholden to these big, huge companies that have a lot of, they're engaging in duopolistic behavior. So they are increasing rates constantly. They're throwing in all kinds of fees and, you know, peak fares and things like that. And they're also not always honoring their commitments around volumes. And so it kind of leaves the retailers kind of in the dust. And so, and it's obviously a huge market. So it's about $200 billion in the U.S. alone. And so we love this company. We love that they're kind of taking on this industry. And if they can even get a slice of the market share, 
it'll be a huge company and they're using technology in a really smart way to get that market share. So it's a super exciting company. Well, how appropriate on Cyber Monday that we're talking about that. Yes, and, uh, exactly. You know, I, since, since the, the UPS and Amazon delivery folks, the FedEx delivery folks are like members of my family. They're here every day. We'd welcome, we'd welcome another one <laughs> to, to come for a yeah. visit. Well, so then the, the next question is, what stands out as a particularly fun or creative moment in your career? Fun or creative? Um is there a deal you particularly loved or a yeah. company? Yeah. I mean, I think they're all, well, honestly, they're all so different. The companies that I spend time with, they're all really fun in their own ways. And I think the diligence these companies sort of have to be creative and curious to really get to the bottom of what sort of the business drivers are, particularly sort of as a generalist. I think it's a real skill to be able to do that efficiently and quickly and understanding what the two or three key levers are in a business. One company that comes to mind, and this is an easy example because we just exited it this past summer and it was a really great return for our investors, but it was also a really fun company and in a space that I had not spent much time in previously. It's a company called Scopely, which is a mobile gaming business. So if you've ever you know, played Monopoly Go, Walking Dead, Wheel of Fortune, they sort of have this portfolio of mostly casual games, but there's a lot of other different genres that they have as well. And they're based in LA. And it was a company that another investor sort of flagged for us as being one that was doing really well. And, you know, having the opportunity to really understand gaming and, you know, what really goes on behind the scenes when you're playing Yahtzee and what they know about you and what they, you know, the data science tells them to do in the game and like the live operations was all very, very fascinating. I know more about mobile games now than I ever cared to know, but it is very, very cool. And it's a great business, as you might imagine, selling, you know, digital goods, it's very high margin. <laughs> so a great company, super interesting to learn about that one and was a really great exit as well. Yes. Well, I'm not someone who's addicted to them. I, you know, I do crosswords periodically, but I do have plenty of friends who are <laughs> addicted to the game. So, so that's great. Yeah. I, I, I have a, another friend who has a, a small venture capital fund that focuses in this space and it's fascinating and it seems to be no limit to what people will, will play or want to sign on to. So that does sound mm. like a great one. So you know, to the to the point we were talking about before, obviously, everybody has a moment where, although most of our careers are defined by success, sometimes we experience failures along the way or a teachable moment. Is there anything there that sticks out particularly that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, when I was in business school, between my first and second year, so most people get an internship between the first and second year, I wouldn't call this a failure as much as really learning from what doesn't work or what doesn't speak to you, uh, which is sort of a twist because in business school, you're supposed to get an internship and the idea is you will love it and you will get an offer and you will go back and you'll like ride off into the sunset, which is, you know, what everybody hopes for in business school. I would say I was in business school at a period of time was kind of in the middle of the financial crisis. So jobs were sort of hard to come by. I knew I wanted to do private equity, but private equity, jo full-time jobs are hard to get. Never mind an internship. They almost don't exist and certainly not at that period of time. And so I ended up at Goldman Sachs on their equity capital markets desk. And, you know, there was only one IPO the whole summer. So it was very, very slow. I had never really worked at a big organization like that before. My, my first job out of undergrad was at sort of a boutique investment bank. And so 
you know, being back in New York City at this huge organization, working long hours, even though there wasn't a lot going on, it really, and knowing at the back of my mind that I wanted to do private equity, it was sort of, it wasn't the best experience, but it was only a couple of months long, thankfully. But it was, I would say it was still a, a good experience because it gave me sort of the fortitude to put my head down with all of my classmates were, you know, going to recruiting events and trying to get multiple job offers. I just put my head down and waited until, you know, the end of my second year to start networking and, you know, get a job in private equity, which is what I really wanted. And I think that would have been hard to do had I not admitted to myself, like, no, I don't need to go to Goldman Sachs. Like everybody else wants to do. Like, I didn't like that experience. I need to, you know, I need to not settle and wait for the, the, the job that's the right fit for me. So I guess it was a failure in a way, but it turned out to be quite helpful. Yeah, no, I mean, look, I think you're, as you say, you're extremely lucky. You didn't have to go do the, you know, the, the tour of duty <laughs> at a big investment bank. Um, and you got into the industry, at, which, as you say, is, is notoriously difficult to get into. So that learning experience actually served you really well. So is there anything about you that folks might find surprising, a special skill, a hobby, an experience? I think most people who know me know that I'm a runner and I am one of those people who like needs to exercise to be a sane human being. That's surprising to people who know me, but maybe what is more, maybe more surprising is I actually am pretty um, artistic and I loved art as a kid. I think had I been able to do whatever I wanted, I would have gone to art school and tried to be an artist or something. I still love design. I love interior design. So I'd say that I do have sort of a creative element to me. It doesn't get to come out very often. But even when I, if I'm doing art with my kids or something, you're like, wow, mom, you really can draw a frog. Or whatever. <laughs> um, and so every now and then, like, they remind me that I am kind of talented as it relates to, to art. So, yeah. Well, that that's very cool. And for those who listen to our podcast regularly, that's actually a theme among uh, some of my guests. They are either artists or they've been in the art world. I I'm very involved in the art world, although I'm not an artist. Although I, I've never tried. I actually think I, I actually think I probably do have some artistic talent. And I'm also on the board of the New York School of Interior Design. So like you, I love interior design. I designed my, my home, which was in Architectural Digest this summer. So wow. I think it's really healthy for us, those of us who, you know, are in the trenches and Wall Street to you find that creative outlet, because I think most of us probably have it. But it's interesting that you and I share two of them. <laughs> we actually, yeah. and, and I, you know, I find ways to give back to those areas, even if I'm not practicing in them. I'm, you know, sort of on the boards of museums and schools. So I'm sure when you've got more time, you'll be, you'll be able to do that as exactly. well. <laughs> well, um, I want to move to our lightning round, which is always really fun. And I think it's a way that we get to learn a lot about people. And the first question I always ask is, what is your cell phone wallpaper? Um, sorry, this is cliche, but it's my kids. I went to a dinner party Saturday night and I, I was telling people that I always ask this question. And one of my friends held hers up and it was a goat. She has a pet goat. And I said, that's okay. You're the only person I've ever met who has a goat as their <laughs> wallpaper. Um, is there a great book you've read or listened to recently? Yes. I, so I guess one thing that people might not know about me either is, so first of all, I, I haven't watched TV in about 10 years. It's sort of my life hack. But therefore, I do read a lot. I also have been running a book club for about, about the same amount of time, about 10 years. The book we read recently, I, I would not recommend. But one that I do really like 
I think this came out a couple of years ago now, but I loved a book called Cloud Cuckoo Land. Anthony Doerr. It's, you know, there's a lot of authors, I think, who try to make this genre work where you have a lot of different plots and a lot of different kind of stories and you weave them together in the hopes that they come together at the end. And I think it's not really hard. It's hard to pull off. And he does it expertly in that in that book. And so I always recommend that one. Oh, good. Yeah, he's a great, a great writer. But I haven't I actually haven't heard of that one. So I have to find that. Um, well, you may have answered this question, but if you had a career other than private equity, what would it be? I guess you said it, you'd be an artist, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Probably an interior designer. Great. Um, I, I, again, I think you share that with, uh, with a number of our listeners and, uh, and guests. So are you a dog or a cat person? I am a cat person. I know that's weird, but I grew up with cats. I don't have anything against dogs. I've just never owned them and they seem like a lot of work and I... I'm keeping a lot of things alive at the moment in my house. And so I don't need another <laughs> thing to keep alive. Cats are much lower maintenance. Um, I actually, my, 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 I had a cat for 17 years who passed away last year and my kids were devastated. And my husband wanted to get a dog and we're in this sort of log jam for about six months. And then my husband, a couple of days after New Year's this past year, showed up on the doorstep with two kittens that were sisters. And so they're a lot of fun and my kids are obsessed with them. Yeah, that's a, well, we, my husband and I are, we're unique in that we're both. We love cats and we love dogs. We, we had for years in New York City cats who were brothers and sisters and they were awesome. Now we have a little dog who we're also obsessed no. with. Um, so what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I think somebody told, and I'm not actually even sure who I can attribute this to. I just remember receiving this very early in my career. Somebody told me to always make your boss's life a little bit easier. And I really carried that with me because I have found it to be true, whether it's little things or, you know, as you get to be more senior, you know, showing that you can do the job that you want to be promoted to is very, very important. I think that's something these days, I think people think they can just put their head down and do the work and get promoted. And it doesn't really work that way. You kind of have to do the job for a while to show that you are capable of having that title. And so I think in order to do that, you sort of have to take take some things off the plate of the person above you and show that you can do it well. And I think when you do that consistently, you're rewarded for it. And that's something that I've certainly observed over the last 20 years of my career. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, I give that advice to junior people all the time because, you know, so many young people, particularly these days, come in. The first thing they want to know is when am I going to get promoted before they've even started their job? And um, I always say, look, you have no other job than to make your boss look good. And make that person look smart for having you, you know, work with them. And because then your boss gets invested in your success. Once you become integral to her success and she can't do her job without you, she becomes really invested in you and, and making sure that, you know, you're, you're progressing, you're happy, you're being, you know, you have the things you need to be productive. So I completely agree. I think that's one of the most essential things for uh, for people to learn in their career. And so sometimes I ask people what's their sort of their guilty pleasure. It's often TV, but I know that's not for you. But do you have a guilty pleasure? <laughs> I actually do. So my other media format of choice is the podcast. And I have about a 15 minute, 15 to 20 minute commute to the office. And in the morning, I like to listen to a business podcast. And on the way home, I listen to just mindless 
ridiculous subject matter. So the the podcast I listened to on the way home is one called The Toast. And it's these two sisters that are, I don't even know, early 30s or something. They're a lot younger than I am. And they're hilarious. And it's mostly just a podcast on pop culture, but it's definitely a mindless guilty pleasure. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, my in my house, we listen to murder podcasts like obsessively we listened to dateline in 2020 and it's so funny because now it clicks in immediately into my car and if i get out at a valet station the valet gets in and it's like you know <laughs> it's all about some you know gruesome murder maybe it's because i'm the daughter of a cop or something but i'm just and, and i'm a lawyer by training i'm i just find find those things fascinating but well it's been so much fun talking with you uh and finding all these things you know points of we have in common and I thank you for joining us today. I know our listeners will be really excited to, to listen to your story. So thank you, Kristen Gunther, for being my guest today on Moments That Made Her. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PEWIN Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PE when expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by PE Win and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without P.E. Wynn's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.